The message this morning is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 37. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right eye and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by all the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Your word is good, and it is hard. And I think that many of us heard your word this morning and didn't realize how hard it is and how good it is. Give us eyes that would see, ears that would hear, hearts that would receive, and use this mouth. Keep me from error. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know that we're in the Gospel of Matthew. You know that we are in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount now, the single longest teaching that has ever been recorded of Jesus's. So the importance of the Sermon on the Mount cannot be, it cannot be overstated. It is without a doubt the greatest sermon that has ever been preached on planet Earth, which we have to behold and this sermon, as we have been saying for the past few weeks, it, it shows us about the kingdom of God. It, it is all about how the kingdom of God functions, what it looks like, how it works, how we are to live within it. And since we are all, I pray, followers of Jesus Christ, members of his kingdom, then it is a great privilege for us to feast upon this sermon, to know who it is that we are and what it is that we are about. So as we continue to journey through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to just really quickly look back at a passage that's going to set the context and bring clarity to everything that we're studying today. Look at verses 17 through 20 in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read this. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, ever, therefore uh, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Christ is not abolishing 
the Old Testament. He is not invalidating it, setting it aside, minimizing it. No, he is fulfilling it. And when the Old Testament law, when the Mosaic law is fulfilled, there's another law that then stands in its place. And that's what Jesus is showing us through the Sermon on the Mount. A new form of law, the law of the kingdom of God. I've said it before. Remember, the law of the kingdom of God, it works very differently than the the, the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, or at least the way that the religious leaders and the traditions had interpreted that Mosaic law. From Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, all the way to the end of that chapter, to the end of chapter 5, Jesus is proving to us just how differently these two laws function, the law of the kingdom of God and the Mosaic law, or again, how people have interpreted the Mosaic law. Because among sinful men, the only righteousness that the Mosaic law was ever able to reveal was righteousness like the Pharisees, a self-justifying hypocritical righteousness. And now conversely, the law of the kingdom of God It actually produces righteousness, real righteousness, like God's righteousness. Genuine, authentic truth down to the core of your being, an undivided heart, as David writes about, righteousness. And it exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. At the end of chapter 5 and verse 48, it's a righteousness that Jesus talks about there. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's that kind of righteousness. So we've got to ask that, the question, what is this righteousness? What does it look like? How, how do I get there? If that's a requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven, I've got to know it. And it would be really easy for me to take this passage that that was just read for us, on lust, on divorce, on oaths. It would be really easy for me to take this and say, okay, here's how we can battle lust. Here's how we can stay married. Here's how we can be true to our word. And those are good things, but that's not what Jesus is after here. That is to miss entirely the point of this passage. He just sang a song, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of My Heart. That's what he's after, to be the lords of our heart. That's what we want to see today. Let's look at those, that first section again on lust. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Better for you to lose one of your members than, to, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. I'll stop there. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Every Jew knew where they had heard it said. Perhaps you know where you have heard that said. I hope you know where you've heard that said because it is the seventh of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. And then Jesus says, but... I say to you. I think Eric Moore did a tremendous job bringing the word last week. He was exactly right to say that what Jesus was doing when he said, you heard it said, but I say, 
He was elevating himself to the position of God. You have heard Yahweh say, but with the same authority, I say. And with those words, Jesus immediately elevates himself to the place of Yahweh. And he says, Yahweh said, do not commit adultery. I say, with the same authority, do not lust. Again, he's not invalidating that former law. He's not setting it aside. He's not minimizing it. What he's doing is setting up a contrast. Something that's going to split the human heart or penetrate, pierce the human heart. And he's going to do it here with lust. He's going to do it again with divorce. And he's going to do it again with oaths. So if you sit in this room and your heart is not pierced or penetrated, it means that spiritually your eyes have been stopped and your eyes, your eyes are blind and your ears have been stopped. Everybody should feel the prick of Jesus' words today. So he's setting up this contrast where he's going to split our behaviors and our heart. Jesus is taking the Mosaic Law and he's taking it to its ultimate end where it forces us to see that we fall short where our only recourse at that point is to seek God. We are compelled by Christ's words to come running into God's arms because we have nowhere else to go. Who else has the words of life? And ultimately, Jesus of Nazareth, he is drawing every person to see the fulfillment of righteousness in him who is the Son of God, the living word. And so to really feel the gravity of this contrast, we need this working definition, this working understanding of what lust is. You can lust after anything, essentially coveting. You shall not covet. That's the 10th commandment. But to lust, uh, to, to covet, that, that's to, to want something for yourself that isn't your own. Lusting after a woman, as Jesus is referring to here in verse 28, lusting after a woman, that's to want that woman sexually. Now, I say that because I want, I want to be clear about something. It's not finding a woman attractive. That isn't lust. That's natural. There's nothing sinful in that. But it's when you have an attraction and then you begin to entertain that attraction and, it, and you begin to fantasize about things with that person. That's lust. Lust is the desire, the sinful, wicked, broken desire Adultery is the action that follows lust. It's the sinful, wicked, broken action. Lust is in the heart. Adultery is what you do with your body. And lust betrays the sinful condition of your heart. And that's devastating. The Mosaic law, the consequence for adultery is death. Death. Like if you committed adultery, they would take you outside of the camp and they would stone you to death, brutal death. And Jesus equates this adultery with lust. Every lustful look, 
every sexual fantasy entertained, adultery. Men, men, we are stimulated by visual beauty. So that's bad news. Because I think according to Christ's words, I, I can say this with confidence. Men, we are adulterers. I'm an adulterer. And to possess such adulterous evil in my heart means that I should die. Perhaps, as I said that, you know, I know some of you are squirming. It's not very comfortable for me either. But maybe some of you felt a little bit of relief. Because it sounds like Jesus is just speaking to married men. You have to be married to commit adultery. To look lustfully after a woman, you have to be a man. Well, I guess you don't have to. But that would be the main audience. So, so you might think that Jesus is just speaking here to married men. Do you know what? You've just missed the point, And you're thinking like a Pharisee. Jesus is aiming at the heart of every person. No one is left out. Any married woman that looks lustfully after a man, she is committing adultery. Even if she's lusting after emotional connection or, or some intimate relationship, she is lusting. She is an adulterer. Unmarried men, unmarried women, looking lustfully, coveting in their heart after another person, they are committing sexual immorality. You see, what the Pharisaic mindset does is it takes these words and says, I'm not a man, and I'm not married, so I'm okay, this doesn't apply to me. That's the Pharisee. They see self-justification. They find ways to self-justify. They think they're, ex they're exempt. But no, the disciples of Jesus, they know what's happening here. They understand that no one escapes, that everyone is desperately in need of this righteousness Christ is talking about, knowing, no, I fall short. That's what the disciple understands. So if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. I do hope in that moment you understand Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. These are exaggerated terms. Those who, who claim to take the Bible literally are going to struggle here. Because truly, Jesus is not saying that we dismember ourselves and enter in order to get into heaven. Those who want, those who want to turn Jesus' rules into a system of, of regulations and rules, they are really going to struggle here. There should be a lot more one-eyed, one-handed people if Jesus is giving us rules. But that's not what he's doing. Instead, Jesus is imploring us to wage war against our sinful desires. Do, do not get comfortable with them. Do not let them rest in you. Fight them. Fight them. It is more important that you kill your sin than you keep your arms. It's like Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Sin, lust, leads to death, to hell, 
Purity and self-control leads to life. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Blessed are they who are pure in heart. They shall see God. So yes, it's far greater to enter heaven metaphorically, hyperbolically, one-eyed and one-armed than it is to have your whole body cast into an eternal fire. Of Romans 8, 13, which we've just read, the great Puritan John Owen famously wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so Christians, brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus, we make it our aim to kill that sin before it kills us. We separate ourselves from that sin so we are not separated from God. Fight against lust. And this is, this is, and hoping I'm not understating, overstating this, this is kill or be killed. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I want you to flip in your Bible right now over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Once again, Jesus is hearkening back to the Mosaic law, but this time he's not going to one of the Ten Commandments, though it, is, it applies to one of the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Now, I think that we need to read this passage in full. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it. You can quietly follow along. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her wife to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Yeah, without a doubt, that's confusing. And it would take some unpacking. I'm not going to fully unpack everything that's going on there. But what I want you to see is that this passage, it mentions divorce. This is the mosaic, part of the Mosaic Law. It's mentioning divorce, but it is neither con- affirming nor condemning divorce. Do you see that? It's not about the morality of divorce. It's, it's dealing with the fallout of divorce. Right? It's, it's sort of setting boundaries around this brokenness that is divorce, protecting people in a way who've thrust themselves foolishly into divorce. But the sinful, self-justifying heart sees a passage like that as license for divorce. That's how the sinful heart works. It's looking for license in wickedness. And so manufacturing license from the Mosaic law by Jesus' day, a divorce was so easy. could be for any reason at all. There's a a famous line written in the Mishnah about how if a a wife spoils the dinner, it gives the husband 
the ability to divorce her, to divorce her for a bad dinner. And then it was just as simple as writing a certificate of divorce. Husband wrote it out himself. He took it maybe before a couple officials and he read it, put it in her hand, divorced. If a woman wanted to get a divorce, it was a lengthy process. She had, she had no right like that. But then Jesus takes this tradition and totally upends it, this Jewish teaching on divorce, and proclaim that the only valid reason for divorce is infidelity, is adultery. Understand why sexual immorality, you need to understand why sexual immorality validates divorce. For from the beginning, from Eden, God established marriage. He created it. And he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Two become, two become one flesh. And so if one cheats, how can, how can one flesh add another one flesh? It's not possible. It's a complete contradiction. You can't add another flesh to, to a already one flesh. Polygamy or, or polyamorous relationships are just an abomination in this way. Infidelity breaks marriage at the very root. And, and it, this one flesh that's been created, this beautiful thing, torn asunder because of the hardness of heart of men, because of the, the wickedness in our hearts. So the certificate of divorce which God allows, he allows it because of the hardness of heart. It's like a sad recognition that there's already a destroyed marriage. So he gives it in his grace and in his mercy, he puts some boundaries around that. So it doesn't just careen off the rails. So we must not receive Jesus' words like we would receive the law, because I know that's a temptation right now to say Jesus is delivering precise regulations on divorce. No, that's how the Pharisees read it. He's delivering principles that are, that are meant to guide our conduct and, and rule our hearts. And I know this because I can confidently say this is not a precise set of regulations. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, talks about how abandonment, if an unbelieving spouse abandons you, that, that's a valid reason for divorce. I think also, in the spirit of that, an abusive spouse, that's a valid reason for divorce. It's like then we can try to parse what's abuse and what's that. And when we, you see what happens, we get into like this pharisaical, we need to set laws and rules for all these things. But that isn't what Jesus is doing here. God's forbearance and in his infinite patience, he makes provision for divorce because of our sinful hearts. That's the key. Divorce is a result of sin and stupidity. Divorce is an expression of hard-hearted brokenness. Divorce is never, become, never meant to become acceptable or light or easy, not in Jesus' day, not in our era of no-fault divorce. Marriage was always meant to be one man, one biological man, one biological woman for life, joined together by God. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
to further emphasize the, the seriousness of the value of marriage, elevating its status, Jesus says that anyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And that takes some unpacking. We'll unpack that. Jesus says the only legitimate reason is for divorce, right? If there's been, if there's, sorry, the only legitimate reason for divorce is adultery. Thus, in the eyes of God, if, pe- if people get divorced for illegitimate reasons, and then they engage in sexual activity with another person, even within the context of a second marriage, that's adultery. If a man divorces his wife for any other reason besides sexual immorality, he treats her as if she is an adulteress. Right? He brands her, in the eyes of God, he effectively brands her as someone who has committed adultery. It's an incredibly high standard. In our day, in our church, I know that hurts for some to hear. And I hope you see that Jesus is very intentionally laying down this incredibly high standard of marriage in an age where marriage was regarded as cheap. Jesus' standard is exceedingly high. Remember his most recent words, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Yeah, outrageously high standard. And you take that last section on lust and this one on divorce and you try to harmonize them, but it's so difficult. Like, I, I, you've got to ask, are, are these things in conflict with one another? If God desires to ma- marriage to last a lifetime, and yet we're all adulterers at heart, like what marriage in this room is valid in the eyes of God? Who is righteous before God? What is this righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Who can be perfect as God is perfect? What kind of law is this, Jesus? And Jesus' words, they bring you to the inevitable questions, these inevitable questions. What is this that you are talking about? Because I cannot get there. And you know what? Jesus doesn't even answer it or try to resolve it. In fact, what he does is he just raises the standard higher. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I know that. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. There are elements of this exhortation in the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And also in the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. But most precisely, Moses speaks of oaths in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23 If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. 
But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. To make a, a vow to the Lord is effectively just to promise something to the Lord. You break that vow, you're guilty, it exposes your guilt, it exposes your sinfulness, you can't keep your word. To swear an oath is to make a promise to another person. So if you swear an oath to another person in the name of God, you, communi- you communicate that God is the guarantor of that oath. In other words, if I fail, God will make good on it. I swear to you I, do, I will do this. I swear to you in the name of God that I will do this. That's to say, if I fail, God will make good on it. But who are you? To say God will make good on your word. So if you break that oath, you bring disgrace upon the name of God. Oh yeah, some Jews were wise to this. They didn't want to bring disgrace on the name of God, so they refused to take oaths in the name of God. They desired something else, still sacred, still solemn, that they could swear upon, that would validate their word. So they swore by heaven or by earth. We're by Jerusalem, the city of God. And they debated which one of these holds greater weight. Like, is it better to swear on Jerusalem or maybe it's better to swear on, on heaven? Others said, no, an oath isn't valid unless you swear it in the name of God. You've got to use God's name. Still others, fearing, fearing to invoke anything sacred, not wanting to disgrace any of these things, they'd say, I swear it on my own head. Meaning, if I fail, if I break my word, cut off my head. And Jesus rejects all this moralistic hair-splitting, all this ridiculous debating, and then he's even rejecting the very motivations that would lead a person to take an oath. You see that? He's going right at the motivations, right at what's coming out of the heart. Because you have no control over God, you've got no control over heaven, you've got no control over this earth. You can't even can't even control the hairs on your head. The law of the kingdom of heaven does not work like the laws of men. Jesus is not delivering literal regulations. You know, just a, there are some people who take Jesus' words as literal, literal regulations. And they say, you should never dye your hair. Because you're not supposed to be able to control the color of your hair. Jesus said so. Others say, you need to refuse to take any oaths at all. If you're in court, you do not put your hand on that Bible. You do not swear on that Bible. No, that's a Pharisaic way to take Jesus' words. We are king... We are citizens of the kingdom of God, but for now we live within the kingdoms of men. And though in a perfect world oaths are not needed, we do not live in that perfect world right now, and even Jesus himself submitted himself to an oath. The high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you, 
by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Jesus revealed his divine nature under oath. The religious leaders understood it, and in their unbelief, they decried Jesus, who is the true Son of God, the Messiah. They decried him as blasphemy. And within hours, he's on that cross. The king of heaven and earth, condemned by the kingdoms of men, and that condemnation came when the truth spoke. He, the truth, spoke under oath. So again, we see the kingdoms of heaven functioning on an entirely different level than the kingdoms of earth. Christ's is a kingdom of, a kingdom of righteousness where its citizens love the truth and live not by lies. And if the citizens of the kingdom of God speak the truth, then there is absolutely no need for anything like vows or oaths. Nothing need to guarantee your word. Like he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see what he's done, Jesus? Upending the moralistic laws of the day, and he's commanding his people, embody the truth. Be the truth. Every bit of you, be true. So if you say it, do it. If you make a promise, fulfill it. If you can't give your word, just stay silent. Say no. Be reliable, be committed, be a person of integrity, be true, because you follow the one who is the source of all truth. Do it because you represent his kingdom, and you want, like the thought of bringing disgrace upon your king just grieves your heart. No, so be true, live not by lies. And how much more so? How much more so when we stand at that wedding altar and we make a vow to love and to cherish until death do you part? That vow is broken through infidelity. And you disgrace your vow, you disgrace your bride, you disgrace your God when in your heart you burn with lust for another. Three times we heard Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. This contrast he is drawing is a contrast between our behaviors and our desires, our outward behaviors and our inward desires, and he's moving people away He's moving people away from their self-justifying legalistic laws and into his new law, the law of the kingdom of heaven. And I want to show you now how he's doing this. 
if you don't already see it. How he's doing this in these three sections, lust, divorce, and oaths. First, like I've been saying, he's pointing to desires rather than behaviors. He's putting his finger right on the heart. Because Jesus is not after behavior modification. He's after heart transformation. Second, in each one of these sections, he is showing that no amount of rule following or avoidance of sin can produce the righteousness that God demands. R.T. France, the commentator, writes, It is only the most sanguine of disciples, or those with little self-awareness, who can comfortably attempt simply to put into practice these teachings with its culmination in the requirement that our lives should be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You cannot meet these demands of righteousness. Thirdly, Jesus is moving his followers away away from rule following and into open-ended pursuit. Where Jesus says, come to me. He's leading towards something that's not, that, that is beyond our grasp, something that only he can give, something that's only available through relationship with him. For when we realize that we are at the end of ourself, what have we left but Christ? But to turn and trust in him. And fourth thing that Jesus is showing is that he satisfies those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He satisfies you with his righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, the Father made the sin The Father made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we we might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. Praise God who sent His Son to live among us, to show us perfect righteousness, to live in perfect harmony with His Father, perfectly loving the people around Him. And then that perfectly righteous one submits himself to the consequence of our unrighteousness. We who deserve death for our, our lustful, lying hearts. And he bore the penalty of the law, that we lawbreakers had earned his perfectly innocent hand, pierced with our nails, his pure heart, impaled by our wickedness, his holy body swallowed in the death that we deserved. And then it was finished. All of it was finished, except for one final act. In three days' time, the light of the world burst from that Judean tomb. And when he burst out of that, it was death that was swallowed up in victory, so that we now can proclaim, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus Christ, the risen King, lives Our life lives. Jesus took our death so that our debt could be paid. And then he gives us his life so that we could live it. 
Live in it, freely and forgiven, and clothed in righteousness, clothed in his righteousness. What he does, our king does, is he sends us his Holy Spirit, that that spirit would invade our hearts and rip out those stony, hard-hearted, wicked rocks and replace them with a heart of flesh, an undivided heart that is righteousness, that is beating for the things of God now, filled with the desires of God. That's what he gives to us. Giving us a righteousness that far exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. A righteousness that, that transcends any laws of earth. That's the law of the kingdom of God, where sinners are made righteous by faith in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of heaven and earth. Where every lust is forgiven for us, every falsehood pardoned. Jesus Christ, our righteousness, believe in him, brothers and sisters, and be perfect. Be made perfect. As your heavenly Father is perfect, the glorious law of the kingdom of God, which does not operate on the basis of regulation and achievement, it operates on the basis of love and grace. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Praise God. We praise you, God. What great mercies you have wrought in the blood of your Son and in this eternal life that he now lives and offers to us. Help us to live by love and by grace. Help us to receive love and grace to flourish freely, forgiven, joyful, and alive under this law of the kingdom of God. Not a heavy, restricting, demanding burden. No, it is, it is, it is light and easy. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to us so that we could come to you. We pray all these things in your name, Son of God. Amen.